Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is Keen on Democracy. A chill is enveloping the world. Everywhere I go these days, the conversation is the same. Everyone is fearful about the fate of democracy in our digital age. The same worried question is on all of our lips. What or who is killing democracy? Everybody wants to know. There's certainly no lack of suspects. Trump, Putin's trolls, Mark Zuckerberg, authoritarian populism, the wall, Victor Urban, fake news, Brexit, Bolsonaro, surveillance capitalism, Erdogan, Twitter, or, last but certainly not least, the president of the People's Republic of China, Xi Jinping. So what's up with democracy these days? Is it really dying? Or is it simply shedding its industrial analog skin and updating itself for our networked digital age? That's the subject of this podcast series. This is a show featuring conversations about the most important issue of our age with some of the world's most incisive thinkers. I hope it both provokes and enlightens. In last week's pod, you'll remember, David Goodhart argued that democracy isn't in crisis. But Goodhart, you'll also remember, was a bit sketchy on the impact of technology particularly the big data revolution on democracy. So this week, I'm interviewing one of the world's leading authorities on big data, Ken Kukie. Kukie is a senior editor at The Economist, the host of the magazine's excellent weekly podcast show, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Big Data, a revolution that will transform how we live, work, and think. And so having sat down with Kukier at The Economist's impressively high-tech podcast studio in central London, I began, as I'd done with Goodhart, by asking him whether democracy really was in crisis. Ken Kukier, the uh, senior editor at The Economist and co-author of the best-selling, iconic, Big Data. Ken. Is democracy in trouble? Yeah, democracy is in big trouble. I mean, where to go with it? I mean, it's in trouble in so many different dimensions. But in terms of technology, many people would say, oh, it's in trouble because of platforms and the Facebook and Google that could be manipulated and do things. And, and that's true. But it's in trouble for so many other reasons as well that we really need to disentangle all the various ways because the solutions are going to be different. And one way it's going to be in trouble is going to be because of the manipulation that can happen for electoral campaigns over big web platforms. The risk, however, not of democracy per se, but in democracies, is the degree to which data about people is going to be centralized by the state and whether protections for people will be guaranteed. Well, before we get to the future and solutions or future problems, let's talk about the contemporary age. Where is the evidence that democracy is in trouble? Is it all around us? Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's like, where is the evidence that a fish is in water? Well, the fish doesn't even notice the water because it's in it. So you'd use that metaphor that things are so bad that everything around us manifests democracy being in trouble, that we're almost taking it for granted now? That's a good question. No, I wouldn't be quite as as bold as to say that, only because there's varying degrees. Well, a skeptic or a philosopher would say democracy is always in trouble because that's their default position, because, of course, everything is always at a crossroads, right? That's the nature of change. 
But more specifically, if you think about where democracy was in, say, 1947 after World War II, of course, there weren't that many democracies, but the democracies that we had and the governance that we had by, say, 1952, five years later, by 1960, more countries had become democracies, and the intensity of the democratic practices in those countries had improved. And we had fairly good governance around the world. Now, that's not to say that we didn't have serious problems. There was the Soviet Union. It was the Cold War. We had proxy battles. We had the Prox Spring. When you say we, we're talking about the collective democracies of the world. You're talking about the West. Talking about the West, but I'm also talking about the collective project of mankind. So we, as in planet Earth, saw that there were more countries that were turning democratic, that the countries that were fledging democracies became better democracies that established democracies tended to have better governance than they had before that. So Germany was a democracy prior to World War II, as well as Italy. The democratic traditions broke down under Hitler and Mussolini. After the war, they became democracies again, and they became stronger democracies. Now, Germany was divided. I'm mindful that history is never this beautiful city on a hill, but generally there was progress in terms of the democratic practices. So you've given us this idyllic, nostalgic vision of 1947 when democracies were healthy. We're fast-forwarding now 70 years. What's the difference between 2018 and 1947? Let's say the year 2000. And the reason why is I think that we've seen it reach a crescendo around the year 2000, give or take, and then it started to ebb down slightly. And so we're seeing countries that had made progress backsliding. That's Hungary. That's Poland. In some ways, you could say that's China. America. I would argue America as well. In fact, the WAGs who look at these issues for a living and come out with indices about it, such as Freedom House and Human Rights Watch and even the Economist Intelligence Unit, which has a democracy index, have all shown the backsliding. So there's a lot of data to show that if you were to look at maybe the 15 different traits that we could accept would be good democratic governance, how well are they performing, knowing they can always get better, that whether it's Singapore or Sweden, If you look at where it is today in 2018 versus where it was in 2008 or where it was in 1998, you've seen the great practices of democracy ebb. Give me some examples. How are they ebbing? Okay. So one practice might be if you wanted an independent judiciary and then you decided that you wanted to appoint your own people in that judiciary. So you put in an age limit and try to wipe people away just so you can make new appointees. Like? Poland or Hungary or Turkey. Precisely. That would be one example. If you have independent media and then you have rich moguls who are loyal to the head of state, buy that independent media and replace the editors and the staff, you would say that that's backsliding, that one of the institutions, the fourth estate of democracy, is no longer as strong as it had been before. If you take journalists and you kill them, or you take journalists and you imprison them, that would be another example of that. And we're seeing this in lots of different countries. Traditional democracies? Well, I mean, I hate to sound like cliche alert, but yeah, I mean, you've got a president of the United States repeats the word fake news all the time when there's news about him that he's uncomfortable to have said. This is the world that we're in. So that's where the metaphor of the fish in the water. So what's happened? Why? I think that the best appraisal is going to be a historian with more hindsight, because now that we're in it, we're all going to reach for our little petty issues. And it won't be incorrect, but it won't be fully correct. But a, a few. But you're a wise here. man from The Economist. You're about as well positioned as a contemporary figure to look at this stuff coherently and objectively. What's happened? 
I would totally dispute everything you said, except for the fact <laughs> that I do work at The Economist. I can't shuck that. But wisdom, no. And again, the point about being in it and thinking about it is that you often don't have the hindsight or the separation to see it all. If I try to play the role of a historian 50 years from now looking back, I would think of it as sort of the corruption of the liberal elite, just as there was a, a great book uh, around the 1920 or so called The Treason of the Clerks yeah. in French. And that was a rarefied argument about the clerks being the sort of the intellectual class and the treason that they had was different. But there was, if you will, the treason of the clerks, the corruption of the liberals in the West. I put myself in that list of being you know, East Coast media elite liberal-minded person who turned up our noses or plugged our noses and looked the other way when we saw things that were ridiculously bad, but accepted it. So examples of the hypocrisy, and I'll just give one example of Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Global Foundation, which to anyone with two sets of open eyes would see that this was kind of improper, sort of impropriety. I mean, if you have a retired American official who has eyes on greater office, this Hillary Clinton, formerly of the State Department, Secretary of State, wanting to run for the presidency, using an independent nonprofit with which to get attention, bring in money, spend some of that money, interact with world leaders, and through the aegis of her husband's previous office, it just doesn't look comfortable. I think most people would accept what you're saying, that the liberal elite is hypocritical and blind to their own hypocrisy. But if you use the U.S. example, what's happened is that the people have turned on that elite and elected Trump. Isn't that what democracy is supposed to do? Why does that reflect a crisis of democracy? Isn't democracy not about electing liberal elites, but about electing politicians and political parties and movements that the people want? No, well, no. I mean, you can't just say democracy is about elections and that it's just majority rule because then you could have mob rule, and we've known this since Plato. So we have to create these institutions around the features of democracy that themselves are democratic bearing. So example, you would have protections for minority interests. An example is if you have a regulatory agency in which you have uh, three votes, you might not get the same sort of diversity of opinion as if you have a regulatory agency who have five commissioners so and five are, votes. Are you saying then that the hypocrisy of the liberal elites, particularly of somebody like Hillary Clinton, has challenged the credibility of democratic institutions? With the disdain, for example, with which Trump and his followers seem to regard most of the traditional edifices of constitutional democracy in the U.S., is that, in part at least, a consequence of the hypocrisy and arrogance of liberal elites, of, of East and West Coast elites in the U.S., or London or Paris elites? No, I don't think so. I think that I don't want angels, and I don't think I live in the peaceable kingdom. I think that people are flawed, and I have to tolerate corruption everywhere I look. I don't care if it's when I try to buy cereal or when I try to read a newspaper and it's never 100% accurate, or if I have a politician who's mildly on the take insofar as giving talks at Goldman Sachs. Like, I sort of have to put up with that. But it's a grayscale, and I'll put up with it on the margins and on the fringes and things that I just sort of don't like, but I have to swallow hard because I don't want friggin' Mother Teresa as my head of state. I want someone who has a, maybe a little bit more muscle in it. And if it comes alongside some self-interest that I have to put up with, I'll put up with it. In the case of Trump, it's a little bit different. Even if we have a world in which we have this imperfection of our elites, we still have these institutions that try to do a good job in an imperfect world 
to have the rule of law, to have blind justice, to have process and procedure for rulemaking, just to give an example of how Washington works. And so that there's a right of reply and there's a right of rebuttal, there's appeals. What you don't have is rule of one man. You don't have someone who's scornful of these democratic institutions. It's not about reforming the democratic institutions. He's sandblasting it and not for the motives, if we'll call it Obama-esque motives of we can do better, we can make it better. His motives are actually the basest of motives. He just doesn't care or it's about self-interest. You're an expert in technology, best-selling author of big data. Is it coincidental that this crisis of democracy has happened at the same time as the digital revolution? Of course not. You know as well. You are yourself an expert of technology. I'm interviewing you. You're you're not interviewing. (laughs) So So explain why. Let's sing Kumbaya and I'll ask you that same question. In fact, you've been on The Economist radio shows, in fact, answering that same question. They're joined at the hip in parallel. And the reason why is that this is a media the internet and the web and social media is a media that's fundamentally different than the traditional media where you had broadcast media and it was one to many. Now you have many to many. It allows for community formation across time and space in a way that was actually never possible before. And so fringe interests that could never actually self-identify and rally together and be cohesive now finally could. And so what was sort of discrete opinion, maybe a supremacist in North Carolina and another supremacist in Denver now couldn't join forces and they could bring other people onto their side. And so where you, before we had this homogenization, homogenization of public opinion through three broadcast networks and maybe five national dailies. And so things sort of devolved down to this sort of milk toast mean of mainstream opinion. Now that you have the atomization of the public sphere, you have lots of different separate interests that can find each other and find common cause. And so how else would you organize a Unite the Right march in Charlottesville to have a lot of right-wing people, or if you will, just neo-Nazis in America, come together and feel a legitimization of their views because of their safety in numbers? I accept that argument, but isn't there a counter-argument that without the internet, you wouldn't have had the real-time democratic initiatives of Me Too, of Black Lives Matter, of the Occupy movement? Yeah, of course. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Zuck giveth, Zuck taketh away as well. So it's both good and bad. We can clearly say that. In fact, I personally believe that it's infinitely better than it is bad, although this (laughs) remains to be seen because experience is not going in my direction. Yeah, but you're the one who's talking about the demise or crisis of democracy. True. I'm not talking about the demise of civilization. Our democratic institutions are strange. Well, in a sense, civilization and democracy are the same thing, aren't they? it depends on how you define it. Look, I'm very worried about the moment that we're in. I don't think it's entirely the internet's fault either, but uh, the internet is going to be part of the solution as well as part of the problem. However, what I do know is that the internet did give rise, certainly fueled and was an amplifier to the populace and the people whom they pandered to, who got so energized that brought them into office and who have, if you will, the fringe views that are becoming more of the mainstream views and whose values are not the ones that in the past the mainstream accepted. So the mainstream, the responsible middle, has to make the case with more muscularity about why some of these very boring things like checks and balances actually matter. Because we're on the back foot, we being the classical 19th century liberals of the modern era, who believe in things like rule of law and process and fairness and a state that protects rights. We need to make the case with a verve that we've never done before that we need these very boring things that are sort of tedious that the elites used to think about because other people just didn't want to think about things like, you know, of a notice of proposed rulemaking of how a bill gets to become a law. 
But these are the things that make a fair society and a just society. We took them for granted. We can't anymore because they're being eroded. How is immigration playing into the crisis of democracy? Can one be a nationalist and a populist and still a Democrat? Yeah. Democracy is a grayscale. Being a nationalist isn't a particular problem. I mean, think the nation is a very good entity to rally people around together, and you can have a very good, wholesome nationalism. I think a lot of Americans of our generation felt that wholesome nationalism. As one small example, and where I think we've strayed from that is I sort of remember, maybe like you, that actually you're not American. And I always forget that, although you spent all your time in the United States. But you look, you play the role of an American. I think Americans of a certain age, I'll say I'll put the age around 50, will certainly remember the first time they traveled through Europe or in Asia and they came across other Americans, right? You know, this is 25 years ago. They say, hey, you're a Yankee, you're a Yankee. Where are you from? Person would say, I'm from, I don't know, I'm from Arizona. Where are you from? I'm from New Jersey. This is the same distance as, you know, Leningrad and Paris, right, at the time. And in some ways, these people would be as disparate as someone from the Soviet Union and a Parisian, like totally different. But at the same time, there was this commonality. There was just a civitas. There was this sort of common glue among them that they felt of one people, of one nation. What was the cause of that? Was it conscription in Korea, Vietnam, and certainly World War II? Yeah, there was part of that. Was it about the flag? Was it about mainstream television from The Muppet Show at 7 a.m. and Peter Jennings in the evening? In fact, it was all of that. That has completely changed now. People do feel, I mean, the red state and the blue state has become this yawning gap as it's never existed before. You can have a responsible nationalism, and we don't have that right now. But populism is different. I mean, the whole nature of populism, it is a four-letter word, right? To us, not to everybody there. No, to a political scientist, if you're calling something populist, you're because saying Because they're irrational. No, well, it's because it's mob rule, that it's really just about pandering to the people for a self-interested governance, not a governance that would be truly democratic, which is to say a state that not only is utilitarian, that looks to the best for the people that get drives its power based on the people of self-governance because the majority has elected it, but it has protections and rights for people, in particular minority views. The whole point about free speech, who used free speech? Free speech was used by the civil rights movement. Free speech was used and was tried to be shut down by women who were arguing for contraception in places where just the mere talk about contraception was about advocating murder and you could sort of put them into jail. Eugene V. Debs, the great socialist who got 6% of the vote around 1912, was condemned for free speech. And why was his conviction upheld? His free speech was opposing the draft during World War I. So the whole point about free speech is, is that it's used by minority interests, interests that we today would look at, yeah, if blacks want to be enfranchised and not have to sit at the back of the bus or want to sit at a lunch counter and not have to take their sandwiches to go, they should be allowed to do that. They should be allowed to talk about the problems. And that's what these protections are for, for minority views. Now, Steve Bannon and others use that today. Is it a misuse of free speech protections for this heinous outlook on the world that wants to deny interests? Sadly, no. The whole point about free speech and the whole point about a state that protects rights is to protect rights that even you have to find noxious and heinous. Hopefully, in the past, it was that more speech would crowd out the bad speech. I think that might be a naive approach of thinking about it that is a very we'll call it 17th century, 19th century view of free speech, a John Stuart Millian one, in a world in which we have this huge abundant speech because of the internet, maybe we need other institutions and practices to protect truth in the smog and fog of mistruth and bad speech. We're in new territory, but the whole point about 
the state and democracy is one that it guarantees rights to people, and the nature of the populist is that they're actually pandering. To answer your question, we need a nationalism that is responsible. We need a civic glue that we're losing in a world of social media where the public sphere is atomized, but we don't need populists. How excited are you by the impact of big data on democracy? Is this the solution? Is this the way out of our dilemma? No. I'm really excited about the potential for big data, for AI in all domains of society. And I think it could be used responsibly in politics. But so far, we're mostly seeing it being misused. How could it be used responsibly? For example, you might, if you wanted to get a sense of what public opinion is on something or how to make a government website work better, you can collect the data. These are really pedestrian examples, I realize. But it's more interesting to say... Is anyone doing that? The Estonians? uh, Dutch? I mean, even in in, in America, I mean, it turns out that under the Obama administration, they had a little digital service that was looking at where were people giving up or clicking out of a website, a government website, so that they could know what features to build in and to improve the functionality of that website. This is kind of basic. They're just applying a Silicon Valley approach to product management to the product of creating things for politics. And that's viable and good. But more interesting is the pathologies that we're seeing because it's being misused more than it's being used. Where in particular is it being misused? Cambridge Analytica is the biggest example of that in Facebook. Explain how Cambridge Analytica and Facebook have been undermining democracy. So we've always presumed that by putting the political candidate and democracy in the public sphere, that we could all examine that person's views and the speech that they had And therefore, we could all come to a community-based agreement on whether this person would lead or not. But we never had a politics in which a candidate could whisper in everyone's ear completely independently and no one else could hear it. But the way that micro-targeting works on a platform like Facebook with the data from someone like Cambridge Analytica that's actually jimmying the system this way, they're able to take the hot-button issues at the individual level, and it's just a prediction, we don't know for sure, of a cohort of, say, the whole population of the United States, and then we can micro-target to their particular interests, whether for you it's a gun lover, for you it's racism, it's anti-a black candidate, or sexism, anti-female candidate, and we can press your buttons either to create apathy around you by creating mistruth so you don't go out to the polls, or to spur you up and rally you to action so you do go out to the polls. Cambridge Analytica the Trump campaign did not take Americans and turn them into racists. They took racists and turned them into voters. And that is the problem that we have. When you have a fragmented public sphere and you're able to have these micro conversations, these tiny whispers to people that they're not even aware they're being manipulated. They didn't know if they're being manipulated by Russia, whether it's being done by another campaign, whether it's being done by a political action committee that's funded by a big financier. We don't know these things, and so we lose the transparency that democracy has always relied on because of the technology and because of the lack of rules around that technology. So we need to improve the rules, knowing that the technology has baked into it this potential for a pathology. Cambridge Analytica and Facebook are private companies, but governments are also abusing big data in terms of undermining or even destroying democracy. Can you talk about that? particularly the Chinese model. Yeah, I was going to say, I would would challenge it a little bit because in most democracies so far, they're not really using big data to undermine democracy. In fact, a lot of countries are using big data to actually improve it. For example, there's lots of nudge units 
which is to say changing the default setting, such as saving for a pension, etc., that if you have public institutions wisely using data about citizens, you can get to better outcomes. Getting so it's people... great for behavioral economists, at least at the state level. If they have responsible outcomes, like getting people to recycle or save energy or use a seatbelt or not or drink not and drive. so much. Exactly. That's great. So where is it a trouble? So we're already seeing the, the canary in the coal mine is suffocated and dead. I mean, we're looking at the canary's corpse in China when it comes to big data, artificial intelligence, and state surveillance, for in particular the Uyghurs, but elsewhere throughout China for facial recognition. That to me is troubling. And to be honest, it's having me really reconsider my views and my wild optimism about big data largely in society. Because as I see what's going on, in terms of how data is being used in China for repression and what's happening in the West in the rise of populism, authoritarianism, and the rise of artificial intelligence, I realized that I've seen this movie before. It's the 21st century version of Orwell's 1984. I hate these historical analogies because if that was only the case, it looks tame. I'm really not an alarmist. I give speeches about how showing a slide of the Terminator is ridiculous. But, I mean, the whole point, the whole plot of 1984 was that Winston Smith could circumvent, to many respects, the surveillance that he had. There was a place in his building in which he could avoid the telescreen. I don't think we can avoid the telescreen anymore, and that's why I'm actually dreadfully nervous. And the Snowden disclosures have given me a lot of alarm that even in democracies, we have a well-meaning public officials in the intelligence community whose job is responsibly to keep us safe, and I think try very hard to do that for the right reasons, who are bending the rules here and there in a way that I think that we should, as citizens in America, be uncomfortable with. Because if we're going to grant these powers to the state to collect data and to analyze data, we want to make sure it's done under the rule of law, not the fiction of law. I mean, the system that's been set up is actually a very good system in the U.S. It just wasn't obeyed, the process by which the safeguards themselves are the right ones. The way it was upheld was not upheld. And so that was the problem. What's the best way then to counter the Chinese model? It's such a good question. I think for a Chinese person, I think it's going to have to be individual disinformation in which you try your best to circumvent it left, right, and center. And I think, honestly, it might be a very failing mechanism. I wouldn't want to rely on it. I've only begun to think seriously about this, and I don't have a very good answer, but I'm very troubled by it. In the West, it's really about getting the institutions right, getting the rule of law right, and having uh, not just the regulations, but the enforcement of it with teeth. If there was mass firings, including maybe up in, sadly, not to the executive branch, but close to it, after the Snowden disclosures, I would feel more relieved if actually Equifax, after their hack, was liquidated and its assets stripped and sold because they were no longer going concern. I would feel like there's true muscular regulation around privacy, both from the business side and the state and the sense of government side. But we didn't have that. In fact, the reforms under Obama were cosmetic and everyone involved kept their job, even those who lied in, to senators in congressional testimony, notably James Clapper lying to Senator Wyden about whether he collected information on Americans. The question, I should point out, wasn't actually snapped at him as a gotcha. The rules of the proceeding was that the questions were going to be relayed from the senator's staff to the head of intelligence, director of intelligence staff, the day before. So Clapper knew the question was coming down the pike. That's an example, if you will, going back to your original one, of the failure of the liberal elite to hold power to account in a responsible way. So we have a crisis of a liberal elite. We have an irresponsible business elite. We have self-interested Silicon Valley elites. Who are the good guys here? Who's going to save democracy? 
I'm nauseated that I'm saying this because it's such a claptrap. I'm aware, at least I have the insight to be aware of it. I'm nauseated to say that I think we're waiting for that transformative figure to do that. It's a figure, it's a man on horseback, it's a De Gaulle, it's a Thatcher, it's a Reagan. Well, I do think it's a leader who can then lead a movement, and it takes a movement with a lot of great followers, of which Macron? I think people like me will be one of those followers. But isn't that a contradiction? No, I, think, I, no, I, I don't think you're, you're, you're... It's such a good question. It is an ideology. It's not going to be an individual, but I think the individual will be the spokesperson for the ideology. If I was to give it a name, I would call it liberalism, and people would say, oh, I'm just a crusty old white guy who can't be imaginative. The point about liberalism is that it's reinvented itself since it first cropped up the Latinate of liberal to be free of liberty in around the the mid-1600s. So we're talking about a project that's been around for 400 years, has found a way to create positive change for the enfranchisement of individual rights without revolution and without war. And so without the extremes of the left and the right, constraining power and also constraining the mob mentality. That was the point of liberalism, that you could have reform and change without death and bloodshed. I think we still need that project today. We don't have a very good spokesperson for that project. And that's why we're in a crisis. And that's why we have the appeal of someone like Trump, who has simplistic answers for complex problems, because he just doesn't care. The thing that worries me about the question on China is the argument that most Chinese people are willing to accept the deal that the government's offering them, which is prosperity in exchange for freedom. I think that's Kai-Fu Lee's answer. And I think that's a lot of other people who are saying it. I think we're listening to the quote-unquote liberal or non-liberal, liberal elite of China who speak English, who are globalized, who are saying this. I don't know for sure if the Chinese are really doing that. I don't know if they're aware that that's the bargain. And I do certainly know that the ground truth would change. It's true when you're poor, you'll take anything to get more material means so you can get better education, better housing, better health care. Absolutely. Let's wait one fucking generation. In 20 years, or even less, say 10 years, you might see a different ethos crop up among young people who say, hey, I never signed up for that. Who are you to say that I did? Because to be human is to want free speech. Isn't that really the foundation? So that is the foundation. I think that's probably right. But really, it is about to be human is to want the freedom of ideas and self-expression. However, that self-expression is manifest. And I think the Chinese have probably felt that as long as people, you could give them the bread and circuses, in this case, particularly the bread, that they were going to give up on those fundamental freedoms. But I think it gets to a point where actually the soul's expression of itself will take over. Self-actualization, of course, after all, is at the high point of the pyramid top of Maslow's needs. And we may find that the ethos of wealthy Chinese are different than poor Chinese. And of course, I'm almost paraphrasing Li Ping's comment in the Tiananmen Square tapes, the private conversations of the Chinese leadership after the Tiananmen Square incident, in which he says to Deng, we know how to govern a poor China. We do not know how to govern a rich one. And I think that's still the crisis of Chinese politics. Hi, my name is Steffi Czerny, and I'm the founder of the DLD Conferences. DLD is short for Digital Life Design and explores how the digital age fundamentally changes our world. Founded in Munich in 2005, DLD is now a globally connected community of thinkers, doers, and communicators. We host conferences in Munich, New York, Tel Aviv, Singapore, and Brussels. And we are very proud of our interdisciplinary outlook and even more so of our track record 
of discovering trend topics early on. Andrew Keen is a long-time, long-term DLD friend who has done many interviews at DLD conferences. If you like this podcast, you should join one of our events. Our motto for this year is optimism and courage. We want to put a really positive spin on recent technological developments from AI through blockchain to quantum computing and discuss which impact they have on business as well as politics and society. Visit our website at dld.co and apply for your ticket. As I warned you, Ken Cook here has a much more depressing take on democracy than David Goodhart. We're in big trouble, he observes darkly. What's happened over the last 70 years, he explains, is that we've taken the institutions and rules of democracy for granted. And meanwhile, those institutions and rules are now withering. So I think he's right to go back to 1947 and ask, what's changed since the end of the Second World War? One thing that's changed, of course, is the internet. As a tech expert, Ken Kukia sees the role of big data everywhere in today's crisis of democracy. Zook giveth and Zook taketh away, he says. But as he warns, all those terabytes of our most personal data that Zook has taken away currently outweighs what Facebook gives us back, at least in terms of the overall benefits to democracy. I think Kukia is also right to be so concerned about China. Like John Borthwick in our first episode, Kukia views the emergence of a digitally networked totalitarianism in China as a living nightmare. It's the worst case scenario, certainly more Orwellian than George Orwell, locked in his mid-20th century analog realities, could ever have imagined. More Mad Max or Terminator than 1984. Fourth, I think that Kukia, like David Goodhart, is right to argue that today's problems with democracy are very much bound up with a crisis of contemporary elites. He brings up Julian Bender's great 1927 polemic, The Treason of the Intellectuals, in comparing our current predicament with the interwar period. What today's elites need to do Kukia correctly argues, is remember how to make the case for democracy. They might begin by reading Bender's The Treason of the Intellectuals. In these afternotes, I always like to end with one gentle criticism. While I agree with Kukia's critique of our elites, I'm not altogether convinced with his solutions. He's right to say that democracy which he wisely describes as a 400-year-old experiment, needs new political ideologies, parties, and leaders. But I'm a little wary of his faith in some sort of charismatic leader, a 21st century Churchill or Roosevelt, who can magically transform everything. No, change can't simply come from above, especially when it comes to reinventing democracy in our networked digital age. Zook giveth and Zook taketh away. You'll remember Ken Kukia saying about our Facebook-saturated world. But one issue that we haven't yet directly addressed in this series is the role of social media in the crisis of democracy. Next week, that changes. I talk with Tom Baldwin, 
the author of Alt-Control-Delete, How Politics and the Media Crashed Our Democracy. Baldwin will explain how and why the internet, and particularly social media, is killing our democracy. <laughs>